1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and uh, today we're doing a field chat. So both Ben and I uh, have been hunting together for the past five days, six days, yeah, and uh, up in the mountains in central Colorado for archery elk, and uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about kind of uh, elk season as a whole for both of us, and... Also really happy to announce that this is our 100th episode, so you're hearing this. If you go back in time, you can listen to 99 other episodes of uh, the Wild Fishing Game Podcast. So kind of a big monumental moment, and what better way to break it in than with uh, a nice discussion on elk, elk hunting, and our own experiences uh, over the past few days uh, elk hunting. So um, without further ado, I guess I'll kick it off. Uh, one thing I will say is that uh, make sure that you're checking out our awesome cooking classes that have been going on. We've been doing those once a week. Uh, you can go down to the show notes and click uh, Wild Game Cooking. Those are all virtual through the Harvesting Nature Supper Club. That's what we coined it. And actually, ironically enough, the logo is a cowboy riding an elk, swinging a frying pan in the air, much like a lasso, but it's a frying pan. Uh, so it fits very much into this episode, uh, Elk Make the Plan. But let's go ahead and kick off the discussion. So I will let Ben tell you, remind you of who he is and what he does because <laughs> it's been a while. So over to you, Ben. Hey. <clears throat> Sorry. Hey. <laughs> told me not to do that. told me I couldn't do that. We've made it a minute. But, um, Hey, I'm Ben. I'm the managing editor at Harvesting Nature. Um, I've also been out elk hunting for most of the month of September, first in Oregon, um, and then I did 10 days in Colorado. Um, yeah, finished out the season here, and here we are. Nice. So I think uh, kind of to kick it off, like I'll talk a little bit about 
about my prior experience. So I have almost zero experience hunting elk. Actually, I have zero experience hunting elk. Uh, before this period, I think I'd seen elk in the wild for the first time last year. Heard them in the wild last year. And then uh, up until like our actual elk hunt, uh, had seen them on this cool uh, ranch out in East, not Cool Ranch. I saw, it was a cool experience as I drove down this dirt road to go antelope hunting. And I looked over and it's a herd of like a hundred elk in this uh, high fence farm. But that was kind of neat. First time I'd been up close to elk. I think that video is floating around somewhere on our, our Instagram page. Uh, if not, it will be soon. And then... Um, I think prior to that, like I've had my hands on elk meat several times that people have gifted me and I've used and cooked some great recipes with it. But other than that, I've never harvested it myself. So this was kind of a big opportunity to one, both get back into archery season and then to also uh, hunt elk in Colorado for the first time. Being this is my first year out here, I thought it was a, a really cool opportunity to do that. Yeah, uh, so this is my second season doing archery elk I did I just moved out to Oregon from upstate New York last year um, right about last August um, so last season yeah it was my first season ever doing it um, pretty steep learning curve it's uh, it was challenging really challenging last year I felt like um, you know I was like learning so much and trying to figure out where they were and then trying to figure out where to hunt them um, because there's a ton of public land in Oregon compared to New York State. Um, but yeah, ultimately ended up getting into some elk in eastern Oregon in a unit that um, after this year unfortunately has gone to draw. Um, but yeah, I did have some um, awesome encounters last year which um, in which I learned a ton about elk and calling. Um, had probably two that were sub 80 yards and kind of had the very typical elk calling scenario where they just kind of planted themselves in an area where they'd either see me, smell me, or whatever and just wouldn't come in any further. Um, but yeah, pretty awesome. And then I've been out all over Oregon for since uh, the 26th of August. Um, I was out about 16 days. Um, yeah, all over. Uh, <laughs> You've been out so long. <laughs> yeah, I've been out for a while. When was the last time that you slept in your own bed? Um, like for two days, like 16 or 17 days ago. <laughs> and before that was like five or six days so yeah I, I've spent a lot of time out this season um, it's kind of it very elk hunting archery elk hunting very rapidly became um, you know the coolest thing I've ever done I feel like in the outdoors and something I really really uh, got pretty obsessed with so <laughs> So yeah, so I took the whole month off from my company and just pretty much hunted. But yeah. So so how did you approach it? Now are we looking? So I know obviously what I did, like over the counter tag. But are you putting for draws? Are you doing over the counter? Like what was your thought kind of going into the year with that? Well, so I mean to be honest, the first year 
it's really only I've really only been living in a Western state um, and thinking about all this stuff for like a year. So I kind of had said when I moved out, um, I'm gonna just do over-the-counter stuff for the first year, kind of um, you know figure out what is going on first because every state is so different, um, and then kind of come up with a plan and figure out where and when I'm going to apply to which area, which state and all that. But, um, yeah, for, you know, for this year and last year, I just did over the counter tags, over the counter tags, of Colorado. There's a bunch of units. Yeah. There's a bunch of units. So West of I, I, I 25, 25. Yeah. So you have I 25 basically being the division point in Colorado, um, to the, East of I-25 is considered the Plains. Those are their own tags uh, that are basically over-the-counter. Uh, pretty easy to get. Very, 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 very low chance of getting an elk in that area. Like, there's only one zone or one unit that may that I've seen people harvest from. Um, over on the other side, the western side of I-25, you have... Um, you know the whole entire state is divided into units so but you have units that are draw only uh due to quota and then you have units that are over the counter that are basically you can just purchase a tag in combination with that they have uh some units also have um cow tags uh what ben and i had were either sex archery tags they have archery tags for cows as I just mentioned and then some have associated archery bear tags that you have to have an over-the-counter tag or a tag from that unit in order to get a bear tag so they're kind of like they're definitely combined uh, and the season runs the exact same period for bear archery um, outside of that then you have your rifle seasons later in the year your first second third uh, some units still being draw some units being um, over the counter like it just kind of really got to get into the weeds and look at look at a lot of information to figure out what you want to do but i think that's also like kind of one of the issues that we ran into is that we had the over counter tags and I, I forget how many zones it is in particular but we just had this big broad area of like half the state that we were trying to figure out where we wanted to go yeah so. yeah same thing in oregon uh like i was kind of saying like when i moved out from new york you know, where the whole main issue that I had and a lot of people have is, like, finding any land to hunt. Um, and then public land, which I had some success in in New York and Pennsylvania area. There's a lot more of it in Pennsylvania. But in New York, it's spare and it's a war zone, um, you know. So coming out, coming out west where it's like, you know, okay, I have literally half of the state of Oregon to try to figure out where to hunt is like overwhelming um so I mean should we talk about like how I picked anything or what do you want to yeah sure we can do that yeah, I think that goes into the scouting and e-scouting portion of it yeah so I mean in Oregon I just did like the units that were closest to me first um one some of the units were um not only over-the-counter for archery elk, but either sex. So I started there last year um, in the coast range and got my butt kicked. Um, steep terrain, really hard to find elk. They're really educated, and, you know, they just kind of ghost you as soon as 
as soon as the season starts, as soon as they start getting pressured, I, I think a lot of them live in areas that are uh, almost impossible for humans to get into, if not impossible to get into um, without alerting them, for sure. And that's why they're in there. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I really just started what was close to home and expanded out from there. Last year, um, you know, I had no luck at all on the west side of Oregon. The, Oregon, the state's pretty split up um, as far as, like, biomes go. The the west side is, you know, the coastal rainforest kind of stuff, and then the Cascades are the high peaks in the middle, and then and there's not very many elk there, although some people really love hunting it. And then eastern Oregon, there's a chunk um, by the Blue Mountains out in, like, um, you know, north... Eastern? Yeah, northeastern side. Confused, <laughs> <laughs> um, where there's a high concentration of elk, and I, I mean, I really, you know, it was kind of funny last year because I e-scouted a good amount. Um, quickly found out probably ninety-eight percent of it was totally useless as soon as I got places. Um, like, wait, ninety-eight percent of what you're e-scouting? The e-scouting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was either. Um, too thick or there's no access or there's too much access that's kind of the deal in western Oregon or there were not trails where they said there yeah. were trails which if you recall <laughs> if you recall go yeah. back uh, earlier this year in, in May May June period uh, and queue up our bear Oregon bear Yeah, uh, we talk a lot about the environment and the climate and the trails and lack thereof or like proposed trails and no, no fault to onyx or any of the other uh online mapping places i think that it, it falls more on it's just over time the way those roads and logging roads and trails and stuff were mapped out like yeah some of them grew. probably yeah. haven't you know so basically the deal and we talked definitely talked about this with the bear hunting stuff in western oregon is there's too much access via roads and then there's it's really challenging to get into places so it's not like other places I've been where you can just walk in the woods um, pretty much if there's no trail if there's no old logging road or a game trail it's really really challenging to walk um, almost impossible and pretty dangerous honestly because you know it's just so thick and it's so easy to get turned around but yeah so that was most of my last year um, That's episode 327, Oregon Black Bear Boondoggle, if you want to go back to that one. But yeah. yeah. And then um, fire season is a big thing during archery elk. Mm -hmm. um, this year wasn't as bad in Oregon. We had some really, really big fires that closed down a few national forests. Um, some are still closed, but they just happened to not be where I was going. Um, in the west side, it, there weren't as many fires as there were last year. But... Um, yeah, so, I mean, I basically ended up last year, a lot of the west side closed due to fires, extreme fire danger, and I just picked a unit um, on the map in eastern Oregon and went there, and within my first day, was into elk, <laughs> having never had seen elk, having never had been there, and I, I, I literally picked the first access in this, you know, two million acre national forest. Um, and got into elk the first day and I was I spent 10 days out there and kind of really cut my teeth with elk hunting out there. Um, 
which was a super cool experience, but it was kind of like one of these things that goes to show, you know, you can do, I did a ton of e-scouting that was all for nothing, and then I just picked one, <laughs> picked mm-hmm. one and went there, and there happened to be elk there, and there were a lot of people that were going in pretty deep, and they were pretty close to the roads, like a lot of the good encounters I had last year were, you know, three miles, two miles from a road, like two of the really good areas I was in, I mean, as a crow flies, it was probably a mile and a half from the road. Um, so, pretty cool experience. And, and yeah. I, w- I would say this, like, loops back around to kind of what we mentioned earlier is, like, the vastness of that. And not to rule out e-scouting, because I think once you sort of, once you decide on an area and, you know, having, like, local contact, I think Ben going into it sort of new to the state, new to the area, maybe not with a lot of, like, local intel... Um, just like you said, picking a unit. Um, I think one thing we kind of did this year in Colorado was once we picked a unit, we all kind of like e-scouted it pretty thorough Mm -hmm. and we actually bounced around to like four or five different units. Yeah. But we all like, we got on the internet and did some research and, you know, looked in both like Facebook groups, looked at, uh, was it go hunt? Like a bunch of different places where they talked about the units and just kind of read through, you know, some of the BS that's out there, but then also like you can pull little useful nuggets out of it and then combine that with sort of your e-scouting. Um, I think what you, you recommended elk one Oh one, like the courses. Yeah, that was a great course. Um, there's a lot of good, there's like almost too many resources now. Yeah. There's so much like, and not to discredit e-scouting at all. It's definitely, definitely super useful. Yep. Um, you know, and, but it, it, I think at some point, you know, you just got to like go, you just got to get boots to the ground and just get into a unit and hopefully, um, hopefully that's before the season and you can kind of figure stuff out. But, um, as soon as they start getting pressured, they start moving all over the place. So it's kind of like, get a good idea, you know, look for the, the typical stuff that everybody talks about, you know, a few miles away from a road, difficult to access, the north facing slopes, steep drainages that are, have like, you know, the cool dark timber during the day uh, that are, you know, challenging to get into. Um, water. Water, food, yeah, food. you know. And, and then yeah. we, we talked a lot, we talked about scouting, and you and I have conversed about it since then, and just like... I didn't get the opportunity to go out and scout some of the places that we, we planned on going to in Colorado, but I also wasn't that worried about it because the elk, too, will move up and down in elevation depending on kind of the time of year and, and you've got them moving around during the rut and all the other things that are happening. Um, so I didn't really lean heavily because, you know, I could go out two, three, four weeks before the season and go scout, and then once it actually time comes time for us to get out and hunt, the elk may be in a completely different spot. So. Yeah. Yeah, especially, I mean, we did the last week of the season. I was out the last 10 days of the season, so I think technically the first day I got there was the last day of muzzleloader. Yeah. Um, you know, so obviously not as long range as a rifle, but, I mean, as soon as you start shooting at these things, uh, they're going to they're gonna be moving all over the place and pretty much just end up hanging out where they're not harassed um, overall. And we'll, we'll kind of get into it a little bit later, but, like, yeah. we even saw their movement with hunter pressure from where we were here in Colorado and saw them shift in elevation and shift over, like, you know, three or four miles in a matter of, like... Maybe a couple hours, yeah. some of them. Yeah, yeah, and you could hear, yeah, 
I guess we'll talk about that yep, later. Yeah, we'll but. talk about it a bit. But let's, uh, I think I want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of getting into this whole idea of season prep. So we talked about scouting. We talked about e-scouting a little bit. I want to hit on um, physical fitness because I think, like, you know, it's obviously going to vary where you're at, what elevation you're at. But I think that uh, it is important to note that a certain level of physical fitness is Required. I mean, and what we were doing, absolutely, because we were up and down in elevation and up at 10,000 feet and all, you know, hiking around like madmen that we are. But, you know, there's also the other side of the spectrum, too, where guys are rolling into their camp and just chilling and doing all that, which I think is great, too. Both sides of it, you know, I'm always one to encourage people to get out and do a little extra physical activity uh, in order to prepare for pack outs and hunting season and stuff like that so just trying to take care of yourself and staying good but is there anything in particular ben that you were doing pre-season to get sort of ready well i'm lucky or unlucky enough to own a moving company um which is you know pretty much the perfect prep for backcountry hunting you know i'm doing lots of stairs i'm doing lots you know with a load carrying stuff and just going up and down all day, um, you know, I still lift weights in addition to that and just try to stay strong and in good shape. So strong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, I know even in the whitetail world, I've heard plenty of dudes that are like, I got a spot, it's 50 yards from the truck, yeah. shoot a huge deer there every year, and there's elk hunters to do the same thing, and... God bless you. If I find a spot that's 100 yards from the road and I shoot an elk every year, I will definitely be doing that. <laughs> but I, I also think that um, it's really, really useful to be able to go where a lot of people can't. And, you know, especially when they're in heavily pressured over-the-counter units, there's plenty of spots where it's like, you know, even with some people that we talked to on the trail that were like, yeah, we're not going to go there. <laughs> yeah. It's too far. It's too high. Um, it's just too much. And, you know, I, I overall, the most action I had all season was in this area that was, you know, about 10 and a half, 11 miles deep. And, you know, so, yeah, I think staying in good shape is super important. Um, what do you think about it, too, outside of the fact of... Uh of just being able to pack in, pack out, and kind of like move up and down in elevation. Think about that, like elevation sickness and things like that, because at the early part of the season, especially this year, we're hearing, we were hearing a lot of people are like, yeah, the elk are above 10,000 feet. Like to get up there and sort of get acclimated, that takes a little bit of effort. Like people still get elevation sickness. And, you know, yeah. I live here in Denver and I'm at like 5,000 feet. Ben's in Oregon. I don't know how high. I'm like, Barely, it's above sea level. Yeah, but I've been at elevation a lot, and so and I kind of know what to expect with my body and stuff. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of those things that you know, for some it may take a day or two, for some it may be perfectly normal. We were talking, you were telling me about one of the guys who just hunts tons and tons and tons of elk, just went up this year and just like got really bad elevation sickness. Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, Belmartonic. Uh, really like his podcast, East Meets West. Um, but yeah, he talked about how he's, I mean, he's hunted at altitude plenty of times, and he was like a little sick before he came out to Colorado, and he got super sick, and he's got one of these watches that um, gives you like your blood oxygen 
and I think it was, I'm sure someone will correct or whatever, but I think like a normal amount is like 95. Um, anything below 90 is like something's up. And he woke up in the middle of the night and his was at like 70 something. Um, he couldn't figure out how to use his jet boil to make food. Um, and he ended up in the emergency room. Uh, so it's like, it's, and, and in that same podcast, they talk about how all summer they trained you know, mm-hmm. this was like, they were training super hard, waking up at four, before work, you know, keeping each other accountable, and it still can just totally catch up to you, and, you know, it's, it's, I, I would be, I don't know how you could do it totally cold, and just, like, not train at all, um, if, it's, especially if you've never been in elevation, and just go do it, I, I, I mean, I personally could never do that, it would be, I mean, it, it kicks my butt every year. Yeah, um, and there's plenty of moments where I'm like, "Good lord, <laughs> this is like, this is a lot." But um, that's that's also what I'm kind of attracted to with that. Uh, but um, could I earn it? Yeah, I mean that's like you know, like we were up above the the Aspen, watching watching them change colors, and a little bit of snow on the peaks, and you know, we we literally heard and basically watched all the elk move down. Um, deeper into the drainages because of the weather like that's to me is such an awesome experience um you know so yeah it's kind of a tangent but no it's good uh that's kind of what podcasts are (laughs) just a big tangent this is all this is but um i I think exercise important and like my own you know kind of outside my normal like running and and weightlifting and training like that is like i i've got an 18 month old kid who's you know a little cannonball and I put him in uh, one of those kid carriers and like walk around with him, like just doing stuff like that. Um, there's tons of resources out there for people that want to get involved on the fitness side. Like it's it, while I think it's important, I don't think we're going to go too, too much into it. We tend to lean on the food side, not the fitness side, but it's, it's an important aspect nonetheless. And I, I think it's very, uh, very key to have in your mind when you're kind of thinking forward to this, you know, whether you're going to come out to Colorado and hunt. If you look at the way elk are scattered throughout most of the U.S., like you're going to find them in mountainous areas at certain varying amounts of elevation. But uh, I think just being prepared is a fun thing to do. Uh, it, it helps add to that success factor down the road. Yeah, I don't think you could go into it and be like, wow, I'm just way too prepared for this. I'm in way too good a shape. Oh, yeah. You know, like, there's no there's no cap on... <laughs> Said no one shape. ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's good for you anyway. So, you know, it's like, it's a win-win. So let's also, let's touch a little bit on gear. Um, so I think both Ben and I took an approach to kind of do a very, like, ultra, ultra-light gear sort of rundown. Like, I don't know what... We weighed my pack at the truck, and it was, like, 42 pounds, uh, and that, that included, like, tent, sleeping bag, food for five days, uh, water initially to go in with, plus, like, all the hunting stuff, plus, like, I mean, pretty much everything you need to survive. Rain gear, pack covers, game bags, knives, like, all the, all the things you could think. Like, pretty slimmed down as much as I could get it. And then you, your pack was lighter. Yeah, somewhere around there. I think it was about the same, but with my bow. So it was like a little bit lighter. But yeah, but yeah, it's. I mean, coming e- from like 
backpacking world yeah. before this, before I got into hunting, it was like, you know, I've done the 75 pound pack, you know, silliness. I've done um, it too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I did it in Colorado and was super unprepared and just got my ass kicked and did one of those kind of trips where pretty much every day I'm going through my pack and getting rid of food and like dumping out stuff and just I have to eat like, all this food right now yeah yeah like just being like well this bag of oatmeal I haven't touched it I have eight pounds of it you know and dumping it out and and all that so throughout the years I really kind of dialed everything down and get as light as possible um like the big things are your sleep system and your shelter mm-hmm. and food um as far as like where a lot of weight comes from, um, I think, I, and I think I wrote this in a blog or something. I wrote it some for somewhere. I, if you've never figured out how much food you eat, you probably have no idea how much food you're eating. Um, and I've found that people either grossly overestimate or underestimate. You know, like I see guys in some of these forums all the time. They're like, "Oh, I definitely eat like 3,500 calories a day, so I bring 6,000 calories worth of food in the mountains. And I double everything." And I'm like. You probably don't. That's a ton of food. Yeah, it's That's a ton. like an absurd amount of food to eat every day. I just stuck with like my normal consumption. Like I shoot for around like two thousand, two thousand twenty five hundred calories. Like is kind of my daily, my normal day to day kind of calorie consumption, and so that's that's what I shoot for when I'm out. But I'm also looking for like those the lightweight food that's high caloric value that I know my body's gonna burn off quick but be able to burn off so they're really like complex carbohydrates obviously we're going to talk a little bit about dehydrated meals in just a second but <laughs> plenty of those um you know and you and i have different approaches to food as well yeah i i feel like i in general uh, i kind of do the same thing it's about 2200 calories I was always taught by people that i used to backpack with you should be planning to lose some weight in the mm-hmm. mountains um unless you're super super skinny and you're super super lean you probably have at least 10 pounds extra weight you know Mm -hmm. on you even with all this stuff i do i definitely do i Um, I got on the scale i lost six pounds so i I fit mm -hmm. the model of like a pound a day day. yeah i really often lose a pound a day the dude craig that we were with said he lost three belt loops this season (laughs) yeah and he was out for what 15 days i think 20 20 days 20 something yeah so so yeah i mean that those high saturated fats um you know like nut kind of stuff um anything that's like like all that nut butter and like chia energy balls like all those things i like a lot just snickers i got reese's uh gotta have something sweet after dinner so i always have reese's i have the i like those complete cookies a lot and those kind of you know things that are like um 400 calories i don't like to have to whip out the jet boil on the stove three four times a day yeah that is true um you know so i make coffee in the morning really strong coffee um a lot of times instant coffee yeah strong instant coffee and then this year i basically i used to always do oatmeal um in the morning and i kind of cut that for the most part and i've just got this condensed milk um that's like the vietnamese kind of style coffee that's like 140 calories and i can just pour that in there i got my coffee and i got 
little meal and I'm good to go, good to start the day. And I, I did one, so my I, I brought oatmeal this time for breakfast and I ended up not eating it because yeah. we had a concern because we had to go travel to get water and then like carry water up in elevation like to where we were camping and it was just kind of like a big, it was a big mess to kind of deal with. So my concern once I got out there was like, I love to eat oatmeal. On the normal day-to-day, I eat oatmeal almost every day. Um, but up there I didn't because now I'm like, I have to use extra water to like clean up my jet boil and like mm-hmm. get everything sort of clean so I can pack it back in my bag and you know move around with it without it being all gunked up with, with oatmeal. So I actually didn't eat any oatmeal. And I think I would lean more to the side of like Cliff Bars or granola bars or something like that to sort of take the place and i think if you did a side-by-side comparison to like some of those bars to like a packet of like oatmeal you would probably find the nutritional values equitable yeah so and it's it causes less mess and uses less water it's like a time thing with me too um um i even though i you know obviously get up early to hunt i'm definitely one of these people who I'm always hitting snooze a few too many times. <laughs> it I'm happened always, a couple times. <laughs> I'm always running like a little late in the morning and you know I'm definitely um, even though I love doing it I love being out I'm still one of those people who wakes up every day and I'm like just not happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean if I can limit time yeah, um, you know so because if you you do the dehydrated meals in the morning, you gotta rehydrate, um, you know, and you could be just sitting there for a half hour when you should be out. So, and that's the same reason why I have stuff for in the middle of the day. You know, I have like caffeine infused goos and gels and those kinds of things, so I don't have to stop and make coffee. Because a lot of times I'm on something in the middle of the day, or um, you know, I'm hiking in the middle of the day and I don't want to have to stop and take all the stuff out and let stuff rehydrate. So, so really I'm only doing the one, um, dehydrated meal a day for dinner or whatever. Yeah. And I, um, now as we're talking about dehydrated meals, so I'm typically a mountain house guy. Like I enjoy the mountain house flavors. Uh, this year I did try to mix it up some and, uh, gosh, I can't remember what I went with now. Something else that was Backpackers Pantry. Backpackers Pantry and was one, and oh gosh, I don't I remember the other one. I can't remember the, the other, cheap but, ones. Yeah, the cheaper ones. They're with cheaper the, than Mountain House. With the black and green kind of packaging. Yeah, I think <laughs> so. They're called. Uh, they, I like the flavors. There are a couple that I was not okay with. Even the Backpackers Pantry. <laughs> yeah. The but. I, I tend to, so I really like the uh, beef stroganoff from Mountain House. So I got like a bunch of, I got that flavor from a bunch of different uh, ones, and I, you know, I was fairly happy with. There was some that I was like, nope. But yeah, yeah, I really like the Peak Refuels this year. They're definitely the most expensive, which is the only reason why I don't buy a ton of them. But it tastes like real food, and when you look at the ingredients, it is real food. Um, and you know it's like all of the flavors I've had of there so far like you eat it and you're like oh that's not bad like if you were home you'd be like this is pretty good like this came out pretty good compared to like I mean I've had some I remember on one trip I took with my dad we I got like this super organic brand was on sale and I eat anything, and I ended up throwing a bunch of them out. It tasted like dog food. Like, it was like seasoned dog food. <laughs> so Ooh. you definitely, you know, 
I don't know. There, I, there's good flavors. I like the lasagna Mountain House. Yeah, that one's good. But I feel like I'm just burnt out on them. Yeah, at this point, I'm definitely <laughs> done. Yeah. I do need to take a break. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Um, I, I did want to mention one thing, though, and this was like a last-minute ad, like those electrolyte tabs. I forget the Nun, N-U-N. I think my wife like tossed them to me as I was heading out the door. She was at a some sort of like uh, a health fair or whatever and picked up like the grab bag and they were in there and she's like oh you probably want to take these on your trip and I had like I never thought about it because I'm normally like coffee and water but I think that those those seriously saved my ass uh, because when we the first couple days we were out it was hot and when we were pushing up to elevation and we carried up water which added like another 15 pounds to my pack I was just like I didn't eat that morning either. I was like, oh, I'll stop and get something. And then we started hearing elk bugles and, we, like, skipped lunch. Ben yelled at me for making coffee in the middle of the day <laughs> while the elk are bugling. And I was like, dude, I got to stop for a minute. But I ended up uh, putting two of those tabs in, uh, like, two cups of water and just, like, that brought me back to life. And then I kind of stuck with it doing one per day because I realized I was like, I'm eating Mountain House. I'm eating all these other like bars and processed foods and all this other things. I'm not saying these tablets are not processed because they obviously are, but it's just I think it kind of helped restore some some retention of water and other things back into my body that I needed, which was pretty vital. So I got home and I told my wife I was like, "Thank you so much for giving me those tabs because otherwise I wouldn't have even thought to throw them in my pack." And I think now they've landed them a permanent place. Plus, it's like a cool fizzy drink because they fizz when you drop in the water. And that was like, add a little... It's like uh, lemon lime. Yeah, so. add a little bougie to my my water <laughs> consumption. <laughs> so, um, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit, though. Let's just go right into it, into the trips. So, uh, Ben, you kind of talked about your past year in Oregon, but let's really, if you hit some of the highlights from this year. Sure, yeah, I mean, so... As usual, didn't scout as much as I wanted to. I had some key areas kind of picked out. Um, I found some really cool areas 
and it was kind of for the first two weeks of the season, it was like right place, wrong time. It just seemed what, like I was like a. Little so what was bit what was your it. expectation going into it? Um, I don't know. I did you? I felt pretty good. Did you build an expectation from last year based on this year? Definitely, because I was like, okay, I was going to spend the first two weeks on the coast range, mm-hmm. um, and kind of you know just spot hop a lot and there was a lot of areas I wanted to spend more time in that I knew elk were hanging out at and my expectations were low there um I had two really cool encounters with the same herd well I guess three kind of longer encounters um and both times they kind of gave me the slip uh but this was all kind of like the warm-up I felt like for um Eastern Oregon because I I probably I hiked pretty close to 100 miles in in that area last year, all over the place. Um, there were some slow days in between encounters where I was like, I'm just gonna hike all over this mountain and figure out what they're doing and see where they're going. And so with that in my back pocket, I was like, you know, gonna do. I was feeling pretty good about that. I felt like there was a pretty good chance I would get an elk there. And then to finish out the season, which I had been hoping would be peak rut in Colorado. I was feeling pretty good. Um, my expectations in retrospect were definitely a little high. I thought for sure I was going to get an elk this year. I, I mean, a lot of my strategy is just like grinding out, you know, like I'm like, all right, I looked at all the stats and your average elk hunter is out for six days. So if I'm out for 30 days, I just quintupled my chances. <laughs> Um, you know, and that's not exactly how it worked out, but, um, so coast range stuff, got some new spots there to check out, but just like kept missing them super elky. Um, I heard very few bugles. Um, but yeah, overall what I experienced and what a lot of people that I've talked to that were out have experienced, um, a later than usual rut really quiet bugle year um you know water like a super dry year so they're not in the same places just because they you know need different water sources almost no wallows yeah there was i mean i found one in the coast range the first week of the season but everything was kind of dried up um yeah and just like an overall they're not in the usual places was kind of like a theme that i heard over and over they're not where they usually are so it was a lot of like moving around um it was definitely you know as a whitetail hunter like that's kind of my background with hunting it's really hard to get out of the mindset of like there's a ton of sign here they're going to come back in the area you know and like for whitetail that's a really good strategy most of the time like if you're on fresh sign you're on fresh rubs and scrapes and there's you know poop everywhere you're probably going to run into them if you sit there long enough but elk it's like a whole different thing you know so that was something i was figuring out this year was like you know towards the latter end of those few weeks if i was out for two sits and i didn't in a spot and i didn't hear anything see anything i'm moving um and i just kept moving and moving um yeah, you know, the, the hot spot in eastern Oregon, I saw four elk, and they were all while I was driving. <laughs> and they all ran in front of my truck at, like, 50 miles an hour. They'd been blown out of somewhere else, and I could never catch up with them again. So I, I basically headed to Colorado early on that because I was like, you know, 
Uh, there's four times the amount of elk in about a quarter of the space, so I might as well, and, and I love Colorado anyway, I've only been, you know, spent time there once, here once, so I was like, I'll just head out early. Yep, because we had, we had had plans uh, to to hook up and, and do some hunting, like we had scouted, or he scouted and play, picked out a spot and basically gone for it, and then, so I had uh my buddy craig so if you remember back from episode 323 uh craig and i went osceola turkey hunting in florida and got to hang out for three or four days well craig's also a big elk hunter as well so he came out uh and hunted in colorado and was actually uh the same time ben was out in oregon craig was out in colorado and uh i kept trying to get away to go out and go join him and just it was not lining up for me to even break free for a couple days due to some other travel so uh when i heard ben was coming out early i just connected him and craig yeah and the the like stars aligned yeah which really i was like this is predestined i'm gonna shoot an elk with this guy uh so basically we had e-scouted probably like six units pretty well and i finally was just like let's i i heard Probably four out of six of them were circus, um, and I just was like, "Let's just do this one." I'm going to be out early. I'll spend some time in there, and if there's no luck, we'll keep moving. And we come to find out that Craig is going to the exact same area, and that it's what not, he not only the exact same like the exact unit, same parking lot, like trailhead, at the same time. Yeah, like I, you know, and I was like, I sent him the pin a couple times because I was like, "You're going here, and you're going to be there." at... 3 p.m. and he's like yeah it exactly then and he basically was like he had been getting into elk in another unit but there was a lot of pressure and a lot of uh i think he just called it silliness that he'd been dealing (laughs) with um and this was a spot that he was going to where he was like this is my honey hole pretty much and he had seen a lot of elk in years before so i was like as far as expectations i was like riding really high because i was like this is all lining up because I'm going to shoot an elk with this dude, or at the very least, he's going to shoot one, or we're at the very, very least going to get into a lot of elk, um, you know, and he kind of told me straight up, like, it's a hard hike, uh, the reason why they're up there is because nobody wants to go there, you know, we were basically going about two miles above where outfitters are doing drop camps, <laughs> so, like, we're going in there, and I was like, yeah, let's do it, I'm down, um, yeah, do you want to talk about like kind of what what you guys saw while you were up there and, and like the week before I made it out? Yeah, I mean, so overall we were camping at just about ten thousand feet, and we had quite a few encounters at about ten four to ten eight. Um, they were up high. So let's clarify this. So like, it, could you? define what encounter is because we're going to talk more and we're going to use that word pretty synonymous and i I don't want people to be like oh my god they were like an elk chased them yeah i would would call an encounter like um an interaction that lasts more than a few seconds or is like really close you know like i would call it like there was a couple times where i bumped a herd at 15 yards you know i'd call that an encounter just basically when you're you're doing maybe a little more than just seeing an animal. Like if I'm glassing something at 700 yards, I I don't know if I'd really call that an encounter unless it turns into like me moving 
you know, and then I get into them. But yeah, just maybe I guess a rough definition would be like a little more than seeing them, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little more, you know, a little more like maybe they bugled back a couple times or you heard a couple chuckles or you know you got a little dialogue going with them or you know maybe you just bumped the herd a couple times and you're kind of stalking them like anything in those veins okay. I would call encounters so you guys had a couple encounters yeah we had bumped some cows a couple times um in the pretty thick like aspen part um you know and the one really good encounter um we he this elk bugled right at the top of this mountain at ten eight. Uh, right away to a soft cow call and he was kind of bugling all night as we worked our way up there all late afternoon or whatever um and we were in like a pretty picture perfect like elk setup there was a nice funnel um i was up front as a shooter like maybe probably 60 70 yards from craig who was doing some calling uh, he was super, the bull was super responsive to the calls. Um, it seemed like he might have had a herd with him. We heard a little bit of cow calling. Yeah, but I mean, he would kind of cow call, wait a few minutes, um, you know, and then the elk would bugle back. He'd be closer, he'd be further away. He just wouldn't come down into this funnel. Um, basically, you know, and, and I was standing there super ready to shoot this thing. Uh, I would have had like a perfect, perfect shot at 40 yards, you know, um, and he just would not come in. He would not come in. He started getting a little more aggressive or Craig started getting a little more aggressive with the calling and he was just right up there at a hundred yards. You know, the wind was perfect and I stood there until, you know, I couldn't see a, a thing and I finally just, you know, walked down to Craig and I was like, you know, it's past shooting light. You know, it's a bummer, but we'll get him in the morning or whatever. And we probably walked about 100 yards and we heard him rip down the mountain to about where we were standing. And he was just bugling and going crazy. We heard him raking. And it was like, oh, my God. It was like 10 more minutes. But, you know, I think about that kind of stuff all the time. It's like he came down. He didn't, like, accidentally come down when it was dark. He came down because it was dark, you yeah. know, and he'd be a little safer you play know. to his advantage like yeah exactly he's on the top of the mountain coming down it'll be dark he knows right where you know he thinks the bull is and uh yeah like just missed him so that was but that was the first day we were in, up there so i was like this is great and um lots of bugling in the next five days um there were lots of elk but they weren't you know they weren't standing still. They were kind of were up above an area where you could hear like probably into six drainages, and you could hear really well all the way across into this other mountain range. Like it was a really good area for figuring out where they are, but um, they just didn't want to come in. <laughs> um, and then you know they'd kind of do the one bugle at five another bugle at 5.30, and they're like 400 yards further away, and then another one at 6, and they're like, you know, 1,000 yards away, and and then it was kind of uh, quiet for, for most of the day, um, and then we'd kind of pick up at night, get into, you know, a couple bugling elk, and maybe they'd come closer, we'd go closer, but that was the first real, um, that was like the best solid encounter that I had um, in those first few days. Now that, that was probably like a solid hour and a half, um, 
thing with that bowl, which was really cool. I mean, that's that's what I really love about this. It's like so interactive compared to other styles of hunting I've done. And Reminds me like turkey hunting. Yeah, turkey hunting, except they're huge and angry and like, you know, there's just something. And I mean, the sounds that they make too are just so awesome. It's like, it is cool. you know, it's really like ghostly almost and like otherworldly. And I, I had even read somewhere that it took, took biologists a long time to figure out how they were even making the sound because it doesn't... Um, I guess it's something in their nasal cavity that they can do or whatever, but yeah. So I mean, we got we got into them, but there was no no shot opportunity, and it seemed like they were kind of moved lower a little bit. And then Craig had to go, and that kind of timed up with when I was coming in, when yeah. Justin was coming in, yeah. And then you had an encounter in between the period where you were like yeah. solo. Yeah. So I mean, I um, was gonna go back down the mountain to get more food and to get Justin. Um, I wanted to make sure he didn't get lost. You know, there's no cell phone service and I don't think he has an inReach or anything. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm, it'll just be, you know, better and safer for everybody if we go down. I just go back down. I got to get more food anyway. I'd only brought food for like six days um, or five days or whatever. Um, so in that, so I got down the mountain a lot quicker than I thought and there was another area um, that we had e-scouted, um, and I was like, oh, I got just about the perfect amount of time to get up there. So I go up this mountain, it was like an hour hike, you know, I was really kind of huffing it because it was already six o'clock. So I get up to the top of this area, and you know, there's, there's this is a true multiple use area, you know, there's people fishing in the streams, there's people hiking, there's people walking their dogs, you know, this was a little bit closer to the trailhead, so... Um, you know, saw some people and kind of were talking to them and they're like, oh, there's no elk up here. We haven't seen elk. Um, like they, you know, they had said they'd been there for three days and I hadn't seen an elk, you know, they were just hiking, but, and then I get to the top of this area, you know, and it's kind of overlooking this one little, one little mountain, you know, and there's some thick timber and I look down at my feet and carved in the sand in big letters is no elk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I was like, well, this is probably a waste of time, but, um, you know, I'm up here now, so I'm just going to sit here and, and, you know, I didn't hear anything until 7.05 and then I heard a, like a possible bugle and I was like, that might be a hunter, um, you know, and I kind of just started heading towards it. At this point I had, I think I had less than 20 minutes of shooting light. And then he just, this bull just started ripping bugles, like bugle after bugle. And I'm like, that is definitely not a hunter. Um, So I started with the previous encounter in mind. I'm like, I have 15 minutes to probably make it a half mile to this bull. And I just started huffing it. Um, You know, I'd do a cow call, he'd rip a bugle. I basically would do anything and he would rip a bugle immediately. Um, And I just... In retrospect, I just kind of blacked out and ran towards this thing. I mean, <laughs> no I, plan. I just... wish I had. I wish I had a better um, explanation for it. But and then I misjudged. You know, I was like so concerned with getting to the bull. It was one lone bull. You know, he had no herd with him. That I just totally overlooked any kind of plan, and I misjudged how far away he was, and he ripped off these two awesome bugles right in a row and I was like that's probably like 150 
and I went another 30 yards, and I'm looking at antlers. <laughs> and uh, my th last thought was, oh, no, those look like antlers. And he's looking right at me, and, you know, I checked after, and the wind was blowing right at him. And he just took off off the mountain, bugling his head off the whole way. Um, but, yeah, so he was probably, if I had slowed down, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say. You always do the. Monday morning quarterback thing, but if I had slowed down and creeped into that spot, I would have had a really nice like 30, 40 yard shot at this bull, but that's not what happened, you know, and it's like, it was, you know, what works on one bull doesn't work on the other, and you know, it was kind of like too slow maybe the night before, or you know, just a little too late, and I had that in my mind, and then I just messed it up by doing it a little too early and just kind of rushing in. Um, so I was kind of laughing at myself for doing that. And then also just like the, the funny irony of the, you know, it's literally carved in the sand that there's no elk here. And I had a, you know, what was my closest encounter yet at the time. Mm -hmm. So, so it ended up being pretty cool, but yeah. And he got up to this mountain that was like at 8,600 feet in, I don't know, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was just ripping bugles up there like... You know, all right, now I'll come fight you. <laughs> come up here. So it was a pretty cool, pretty cool encounter. But yeah, totally blew it. Like, there's no other way to put it other than that. I blew it. <laughs> it's a bummer. I it couldn't. I couldn't imagine running into that and just being like, ah, yep. no. <laughs> I mean, I could because I've done it with other things where you're like, wait a minute. You kind of like squint and turn your head sideways yeah, and you're like, like, Those wait look a like minute. And then it just busted out. It's too late. So. Yeah. Um, and then the next day, uh, you and I met up and, and headed up the trail. Uh, you came, met me down in the parking lot and so you resupplied and then, and then we headed up. And so our attention was we had one camp cause I got there a little later in the afternoon than what I was planning. So our first camp was, uh, kind of off the main trail and then we'd branch off and head up to the higher camp the next day, which we did. And then, um, we actually, that, that second morning, so the first first hike in the first like four miles is pretty uneventful but the second morning we were both still in our tent kind of hitting the snooze button and that's when we heard that bugle yeah we heard a big bugle like right where we were going and justin was like did you hear that and i was like yep and we're you know scrambling to get ready and yeah i actually left my paracord there oh i forgot to check for it when we went back <laughs> somebody probably picked it up that's okay um yeah we scrambled to try to get up up and and into position to like move that direction but man i will say that that was a very challenging hike from that point forward and it was probably like six miles i think from from camp one up to where camp two was and we had to do water uh you know i had to stop for water once and then just to get water and coffee which we can tell that story because then we think the a, an elk that both uh had a very distinct bugle uh, you want you want to give us a, an an idea of what the bugle is? It's kind of to me. I've been telling it to people. It sounded like a person imitating a wolf. Yeah, like he was just like, Roar. yeah, like that would that would be the whole bugle. Roar. <laughs> and but he would like consistently call back, uh, even while I was up there. But we heard him. Uh, I mean, we were probably like maybe a thousand five hundred yards from where he would have been. Yeah, estimated probably closer. And, you know, I was kind of, like, taking my time. I was really tired. I needed a break. And I was like, all right, we got to get water. And, oh, yeah, I'm going to make some coffee. 
<laughs> Ben's like losing his mind. Yeah, like, was, no, we need to go I find this like, bull like now. I was like, we're on this bull. Like, we have to go get him. You know, and like, yeah, man. I, I just, just, just make quick like, coffee. Look, I really need to make coffee, so I was like, okay. Okay. I didn't eat breakfast that point, and it was like he that was where I mentioned either. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> so like, it was not a great start yeah. of the day. It was like all right, you know, and and um, you know, kind of in line with the season. As soon as we got pretty close, he totally clammed up, and yeah, we that didn't was... hear him until we got until we were like we were loaded up with the water. I mean, I think I was bringing up like nine liters. Just you know, the the water spot was. You know, basically it was a it's a tough six miles the second half. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're the parking lot I think is at like sixty three hundred feet, and the the second camp is right at ten thousand or ten thousand two hundred. So like a lot, and almost all the elevation gain is in the last four miles. So, yep. and the water was the closest water we found was nine hundred feet down. You know, just like the usual. The usual nonsense with the high country and water so um so we just like really really loaded up i brought i gave justin a five liter plastic thing and mm-hmm. i had my own and you know we had i guess like nine about nine liters each um strapped to the packs and any which way and i think we started hearing them again once we got to the top um yeah. and we were both pretty wiped i wasn't super hot on going right back down into there um yeah but but we did get get up top and do some bugles and like he was responsive there yeah they they like justin showed up the day that they all started bugling for sure yeah i mean we'd bugle and i and i mean all day you know and we have footage of they're bugling at 11 30 2 p.m all all day long we'd bugle they'd respond um but they were like all over. Like there was, yeah, they were where really our camp out. was was definitely at the top of like two distinct drainage. One which we came up, up and made several trips up and down, uh, trying to get at the same bull who just kind of liked that spot. No matter where he'd move away to, he'd move back into it. Yeah. But when we'd get down to him, he would just like go quiet, and we must have been within two hundred yards, a hundred yards, and like we sat there. I think one day the it was the third or fourth day we sit there for like two hours yeah just waited. I mean, we thought i thought we were like really in his zone uh we could hear him raking really well oh, yeah you know like um and we just there was no sign of him really no it was super thick i mean it was a mix of pine and aspen and just like a lot of brush Everywhere you could see why they were in there. Oh it yeah, it's just cause... one of those areas. You know, it's nine hundred feet down, super steep. The wind was super funky, like whatever wet. You know, we were like waiting for thermals to switch, and then the wind would start swirling, and it was like just one of these, like perfect elky drainages where it's like if you get in there, he's gonna be in there. But good luck getting in there, and that's why they're there. You know, because it, it's hard to get to. And I think that that's important to point out is like that was kind of our strategy throughout was like. And later we figured the key, but we never got to test it because the the weather kind weather, of turned yeah. on us. We'll, we'll we'll hit on that in just a second. But bugling from up top, they were very responsive. But as you started going down closer to them, they would clam up. And you know, Ben and I discussed it, and and you referenced like there's sort of some scientific thought behind it of like uh, 
elk not wanting to challenge another elk that's at the high ground and like we're coming from up high down low so they may think like oh they have the advantage completely just a yeah. BS theory we have but uh, yeah, in my no, mind like it makes sense stuff too. Yeah. it seemed like it seemed like the rut was later um, so I think a lot of it too was like they were willing to be like hey I'm over here if you want to fight or whatever and then when they get close to like you know they're just not down yet they weren't ready Mm -hmm. to have that like blowout fight they were still kind of tolerant like they were all like the bachelor groups were split up for sure like Mm -hmm. bulls there was like a bull in each drainage but they were not you know they didn't want to come up yeah they didn't want to come down like if you go down they just got totally quiet and i think they were just you know i think in another week if we went back and did the same thing it probably would be on we'd be able to call either call some up or at least have you know, interactions with them that are more, that were closer, because I mean, all the bugles on top were probably like, some of them might have been a thousand yards, like, you could really hear well in this area. So then, another thing that happened while we were there, and we knew this was going to happen, is on Tuesday, the cold front was coming through, and we... we That's when they turned on with the bugles. And it was preceding that cold front, Mm -hmm. and then... The cold front hits, and like the first day was okay because it was just kind of rain and stuff off and on. And then they really clammed up that day. We didn't get much. And then that night, things kind of turned a little south for us, more like just Ben and I, and not from a hunting perspective, more of like a just being out there perspective. I think we we were out, we were up at elevation. We thought all the storms had kind of passed, and then. We were up above our camp on the ridge listening to the adjacent set of drainages to the east. And we're actually listening to hunters sort of shuffle elk around and elk move and all this other stuff. And then uh, I noticed, I was like, I think that's that's a storm coming. Like, we should probably start pushing back down. At that point, it was already cold. Uh, We pushed down and decided not to get our rain gear on in time because we just thought it was going to go. And that was when the grouse, we got the grouse too. Yeah. Which that was cool. Yeah, we definitely, well, at least I did, committed, like, the the fatal, I think a lot of it was, like, it's it was almost dark, too, mm-hmm. you know, and you're dark, it's almost dark, you're tired, you're heading back to camp anyway, and I kind of was, like, like, waited a little bit to put rain gear on, so I got a little bit wet, and then I put the rain gear on, and then I, then your rain gear then got that wet. got really yeah. wet, um, and I have decent rain gear, but it was, like, really coming down and then we heard a bugle that was pretty close in the one drainage and i was like i'm going down um ended up really wet um even with the rain gear and then it rained for the next 20 hours we got in we got into (laughs) our tents like we got back to camp and it was like it was i think like 6 30 like it was early we were joking about like oh we'll get a good night's sleep at least and well, we got into our tents at six thirty, seven, whatever it was, and we did not leave our tents until 11 o'clock the next morning. Yeah, and by uh, then it had rained, sleeted, hailed, and snowed. Yep, all in that. <laughs> and so then we got into, and the temperature was absolutely frigid. It was cold, uh, yeah. And so now we're looking at, like, the only really dry spots are in our tents, uh, you know, luckily we were fairly dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, my tent was completely dry. I'll give a shout out. We both had Nemo tents. Uh, this was the first year I had ever used it. I bought it. Uh, I think it was mine, the Hornet, the two person, uh, yeah. cause I like to have a little space inside a little wiggle room. Um, 
and it absolutely performed phenomenal. The inside stayed dry, condensation was minimal, uh, it, it kept my gear kind of on the outside edge, like the rain cover extended mm-hmm. beyond the, the width of the tent, and so I could tuck my pack and my bow and other stuff, and it kept that stuff dry. Um, yeah, yeah, I have the same one as a one person, mm-hmm. and these are, you know, single-walled three-person tents, or three-season tents, rather. And there was enough room to keep my stuff dry, you know, keep myself dry. Like, I was really, I was really pleased with it. You know, I don't think, I, I wouldn't take it out super late season with two feet of snow, mm-hmm. but, like, I was super impressed because, yeah. you know, it's, they're both ultralight tents. Mine, the single person is sub two pounds. I think it's one pound, 10 ounces, and Justin's about two pounds. Yeah. So, I mean, to have... You know, and that's kind of the toss-up is, like, do you go too ultralight and you end up in stuck in a bivy for a day and a half? Um, so, yeah, we were both, like, just really impressed with how well they did. And I think know. it was a, it was definite saving grace, too, because we, at that point, had we gotten wet and with the cold and, you know, we started, then we started trying to do a fire and, like, couldn't get a fire going. Everything was too wet. Like, the snow is dripping from the trees. Like, we just... Yeah, it was looking pretty, like, I mean, we basically were, like, you know, I was, like, if we don't get any kind of sun or anything today, we're probably going to have to go down because everything yeah. is wet. Um, you know, like, the little bit of condensation on, like, I had gotten my down jacket a little wet. I had... Um, the sleeping bag was just a little bit of condensation. Um, the down sleeping bag I have, which cooks off, you know, I'd cooked off no problem during the day earlier, as long as it's basically not Mm -hmm. super cold and wet. Um, but yeah, so I was a little worried about that where I was like, "Mm," you know, and then the rain gear was just soaked through and I basically, we basically each had like just the set of clothes we were wearing that were still dry. Yeah. And I was like, we were going to well, no, call my, it. My pants were still wet. I only had one pair of pants. Yeah. And they were, they were wet, but I was okay. Mm-hmm. And we set a timeline. We were like, look, if the sun's not out by 1 PM, like yeah, we're we, going to have to probably going to have to head yeah. back to the truck like a day and a half, two days early, just because we, we just, we out. didn't want to get, we, cause we were thinking, um, you know, I was able to send a message to my girlfriend with the Spot X, and she was like, um, it's supposed to rain the rest of the week, pretty much. So I was like, okay, it's going to snow up here. You know, we don't want to get, like, stuck. St- or like, actually snowed in, where we're, like, yeah. post-holing for six miles and two feet of snow, <laughs> which yeah. is not fun. Um so you kind of, you don't know, that that definitely sets into realism real quick. It's like, oh, I can't look at the radar. I can't look at the weather predictions. Yeah, like, we're not sure. We just got to see how it goes and kind of look at the sky and hope. Yep. And yeah, we got, we'd lucked out. The sun came out. For about two hours? Yeah, and that was, I mean, we had, like, uh, I had all my clothes out on rocks and stuff. Yep. And it was, like, just enough before the uh, next storm came in later to get everything dry where it was like totally comfortable with staying. Um, yeah. Well, well we, we moved, we moved. So we also were like, look, also the elk are no longer up here. Like there yeah, are no elk were, above there us. There was none They're above us, us in the five days. They were all below us. So we decided to move down, um, and, and to make sure, you know, at yeah. least it'd be rain and not snow or whatever. 
So, so we, dry, we got our tents dry, we got our clothes dry, and we packed up everything, and we moved down to elevation. Spent the afternoon, like, trying for bugles and just waiting, and they, yeah, they were just was really quiet. quiet. We had one, one bugle, like, right before we crawled into our tents that night, one bugle... Uh, been well, you heard a few. I think they were just like way. way they were way way on off. the other yeah, side yeah. of the mountain. Yeah, I couldn't even hear them, and Justin would be like, "Yeah, there's, that's uh, that's our guy." But uh, yeah, that 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 was kind of what kept me up there for those many days. Was you could hear so well, so I was like, at the very least, we know what's going on in the in the area. And then once we ducked into the drainages, it was just it was tough to hear anything. Mm-hmm. It's thick thick aspen and you know there was that outfitter right there so any elk that are in the general area they get hunted all year hard Mm -hmm. so i would say we had we had one it was that same day too because it was while we were up top drying gear we heard a hunter bugling the next ridge over the next drainage over uh, and then we hear an elk cross the top of the drainage. Like you hear, I could hear it breaking brush. I could hear it moving. Mm-hmm. And then we hear it subsequently over the next like hour bugle, like five or six times as it moves down. And that's the one that covered, he must've covered five miles easily yeah. within that hour, hour and a half. Yeah. It was really neat. It was almost like, you know, we had a bird's eye view up there of what hunting pressure does with elk. Um, and the day before we had the same thing where we heard this hunter and I, and I, I mean, I've done it, you know, the elk was bugling like crazy. He would respond to the calls, but the elk was running away from him (laughs) or desperation. Yeah. And you could hear like the hunter would bugle and he'd bugle and he'd be like, (laughs) you know, and, and I mean, this went on for probably a solid hour and a half where it's just like the elk is here and the guy bugles and, you know, there's no no response bugles again and then the elk responds and then they try to close the distance and, you know the elk is here and he goes to there and then the elk is gone and the elk is up here and bugles and it was like it was pretty funny and also like very enlightening to be like okay uh, next time you're in this situation this all you're doing is just chasing the thing around yeah. and it's gonna win every time on a foot race you know between you and you and an elk it's you know and just seeing how quickly they can navigate so far and just be like, they're six miles away and you're still standing there wondering, you know, oh, mm-hmm. am I in its zone? Am I, he might be sub 100 and he's gone. Like, <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was pretty neat to watch and pretty enlightening. And so then now we find ourselves waking up the morning of like the last day and like we're, uh, Rip, rip a few bugles, just kind of waiting. It's it's like all quiet, so we just decide. Like at this point, we're like, man. Yeah, last day of the season. That was like, I feel like I woke up that day, and the whole month just hit me. Like I woke up, and I think we woke up at like six, and I was like, good lord, I'm so tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I've been out so much this month, and it just like I'm pretty much done, and um. Yeah, so we started working our way out, packed up. Um, yep. Kind of slow hunted our way, bugled, cow yeah, called. Yeah, bugled like, a little bit, just kind of like the Hail Mary. and Got down by Camp 1. We were also soaking wet again because it, it rained, rained that more. night. It rained more that night yep. throughout the most and of the night. Was like just ton- everything, it wasn't raining as we were hiking, but everything was soaked. So yep. we were like, you know, 
And just totally we, we confirmed, too, it had snowed a ton back up at the top of the mountain. So we probably would have got inundated again yeah. uh, and had to deal with that whole scenario. So I think, in retrospect, we definitely made a good decision by moving down elevation. Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, I was like, I wanted to stay up because we could hear, but it just it would, would have been kind of dangerous and kind of mm. silly, you know. And with everything being wet, it was like, Justin was like, well, tonight it's all going to freeze. Like, yep. all this stuff is going to freeze. And then, you know, then you're in a very different situation. Everything is frozen. Um, so it was kind of, we had to, you know, definitely made the right call by yeah. moving down. So then we're out and we get, uh, you know, we do, it's what, four miles, I think, to Camp One? No, it's. Yeah, like six down to Camp One, and yep. then like four and a half to the trailhead. The so we get down to Camp One, and we have to change socks, and we take a break, and like yeah, I wrung out my socks and dump water out of my boots, and that was just from everything being so wet. But yeah, and we hiked through, you know, and I think I had even said at one point like, you know, there's definitely elk closer to the truck, but this area. Not so much in this area because it's like a, a canyon. You're basically walking through a canyon the first few miles. So there's probably not going to be any out there. So we're just bebopping along. Yeah, we're just chatting and, you know, we're like walking and talking. And all of a sudden we heard just loud break brush, like maybe 10 yards in front of us. And which I thought when you were like, you like, stop. Because I was probably 10 yards behind he you. He was a little back. Yeah. And I thought you were like, it's a bear because I had expected us to within camp one and the parking lot. It was more likely we would yeah, run we kept, across we a bear. Had a lot of, a lot of weird run-ins with hikers and there must've been somebody up there hunting bears or something. They're, Every single person yeah. asked us if we had seen bears and if we were hunting bears. So we were like, Justin was like, okay, this is a bear hunt now. Like, yeah, I had a bear. bear. I had my bear tag too. So I, I was prepared. Yeah, so I mean, I took a couple steps forward to see what it was, and it was the easily the biggest bull I've ever seen in the field, including at like elk refuges and Yellowstone and areas like that. But um, all I could see, the brush was so thick and it was steep, all I could see was the top of his eyes and it, it, this huge rack. And so I'm there, like, I'm just like, trying to get Justin to stop walking first. And I'm going like, it's a bull, it's a bull. And he's going like, it's a bear? Is it a bear? What is it? And I'm like, it's a bull. You know, and I'm like freaking out. You know, it was probably like 30 yards tops, 30, 40. Um, And, you know, the wind was just going right up into his face. And he just had seen enough. And he just booked it up this almost vertical canyon. Um which I tried to chase up, chase him after, but it was like such a, you know, such a perfect kind of ending. And, and I had set a loose goal of having more encounters this year than last year. And that, that put it over the edge where I had ended up having more encounters this year, but man, it was like, it was such a bummer way to end it in a way, you know, where I was like, Oh my God, if we were just a little slower, a little quieter, he probably was just standing right in the trail. <laughs> yeah. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, he but that's the deal, you you know. I feel like I've done it with every species of been on hunts where it's like you can't stay in that zone where you're just creeping around for 
you know, 10 hours, like, <laughs> you know, and we had really written off that we were going to see anything that close to the truck and just the, it just wasn't, it was just a really popular area. There was even, even that morning there was, you know, a bunch of sneaker tracks and like, you know, it's, it's, yep. we like it, a little bit further down the trail, we ran into probably three other groups of people. In just, the outfitters? Yeah. And the outfitters, like, yeah, it would, it would have been, uh, it would have been pretty perfect. The guys with mules were coming in. We could have just had them pack the whole thing out. And, and I, I mean, I can't. I'm not an expert in scoring bulls or anything, but it was definitely like a 300 plus inch. Ben has huge, also now for the past two bull. days been going replaying the scenario. And every yeah. time he comes up to me, he's like, "So what I could have done?" <laughs> He's well, like, it's like in this moment. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I replayed it, and I'm like. Should I have drawn? And then when he spooked, tried to stop him. And like I, I, I mean, I technically had a quartering away broadside shot for, I don't know, a quarter second, you know. And it's like, could I have if I just yelled real quick or gave him like a little whatever, stopped him in that position? Maybe I don't know. I went to, I immediately cow called and tried to stop him, and he just, I mean, he just huffed it up this mountain. It was. And I went chasing after him. I fell on my broad head and cut my finger a little bit. Like, but um, yeah, good. Uh, you know, and then we made call it out. for next. Yeah, good. What should we call it for next? Yeah, motivation. Year? Good cliffhanger. Yep. Good like. Yeah, they're they're out there. You know, I mean, this is a huge herd bull public land over the counter Colorado unit, and it you know we had seen tons of hunters. There was probably 30 cars in the parking lot the whole week. Like, this area gets hit hard, and he was just standing on the trail. So 20 yards <laughs> 20 off the trail. 20 yards off the trail, just yeah, whatever, doing whatever he was doing, just hanging out. So, like, you really, it was really one of those kind of perfect, you just never know. You're like, you really don't. So, I, and I, I think for me is, like, this being my first time, and I talked about it too, and I, I talked about it with several folks, like, after this, like, I, I'm not dissuaded uh, to elk hunt with archery, like, continued. Uh, you know, I've got another elk hunt coming up for a cow tag in Wyoming for a rifle. I, I'm not dissuaded from doing any of that. I just, like, I don't think I'll roll into something as hard and heavy as I did for this trip just because, like, it took a lot out of me, and it's just, like, whew. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it was, it's tough it was to, a rough hunt. It's tough to hike up something. You know, and that far and that steep at that elevation, and then like, you know, you start hearing bugles and it's time to go. You got to go back down. Yeah. <laughs> you yep. know, and like you know, you do that a few times, and it it takes a lot out of you mentally. You know, I was talking to Justin. Like, I feel like elk hunting has the most highs and lows out of any outdoor thing I've done. Where like, you're like, man, this is terrible. I'm all the way back here. I'm wet. There's nothing going on, and then you hear a bugle, and it's on, and you're like, all right, and then you try to get in, and you're, you know, your adrenaline is pumping, and you're like, this is it, this is it, I'm mm -hmm. finally going to do it, you know, I'm going to be part of the 8 percenters club, and then quiet, you know, or whatever, like, <laughs> you blow them out, like, you know, and, or you mistake, a, like, I had, I blew out a herd in Oregon this year, I heard a bugle at like 200 yards and I started closing the distance in the morning and then I heard another bugle at 400 yards 
Um, so I started heading towards that bugle thinking he was moving away and it turned out to be another hunter. And I just, I walked right up to the herd and blew him out and never saw him again. Never heard him again, <laughs> you know? And it's like just so many highs and lows where every day you're kind of like battling and constantly coming up with new plans, you know? And that's, uh, you know, that's what Craig said the one morning I was like, all right, so what's the plan? And he just, you know, he's eating his food and he's like, oh, we don't make the plan. The elk make the plan. <laughs> so I really like that. True. Elk I was, make the plan. I was thinking that the whole time, you know, and I was like, the elk really do make the plan. Like, you can do whatever you want, but the elk are going to tell you what to do, where to go, and where you need to be. And it's just a matter of if you can get there. You have a last thought? I think that was a good last thought. It was a good last thought. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. So, yeah, my last thought, I am definitely ready to do it again. Not quite to the extent of that. I think there's some There's some definitely time. easier elk. Yeah, there's some there's time for me to grow and learn elk. here in Colorado. <laughs> Find easier elk. Um, but, no, it was an awesome experience overall, and I'm really glad I got to do it. Uh, I learned a lot to be my first season. Um, but we'll see what next year brings. But I will say this. Uh, you know, make sure you're following podcast here whatever podcast platform you're listening to and sure that you're subscribed and listening to it uh we do talk a lot about food but i think pretty frequently uh you know especially as we get into hunting season we get out into the field and recount some of these experiences and really some good lessons learned uh along our way is is you know like we say in the title is we're in pursuit of our food uh, these are important things that we've learned and very valuable for us to pass them on. Uh, hopefully you've taken something from this episode. Maybe it motivates you to hunt elk. Maybe it says, well, I'm not quite ready yet. I'll give it another year or two and do some research and prepare. Um, but either way, you know, we, we want you to be entertained and educated by what's going on in the world here. Yeah, so I just want to add, like, if you're... You know, somebody in the Northeast, you're a whitetail dude or, what you know, dudess, or, and you're thinking about making the jump, like, just do it. Just come out yeah. here. Get an over-the-counter tag and just start learning. And, like, you know, I think the both non, the non-resident over-the-counter tag for Colorado, I think, was, like, 680. Like, I, I had it in my head a long time that if you were going to hunt elk, you need to be spending five, six, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 and... You can make this trip work for like fifteen hundred bucks. You know, it's yeah. not going to be. You're not going to see five hundred. You know, four hundred fifty inch bulls screaming all over the place. But they're they're there if you're willing to work for them. Maybe sometimes, even right by the yeah. yeah. Sometimes, sometimes just right twenty yards off the trail. Yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> that could be a good strategy. Just hang out by the trail. Um, well, I thank everybody for listening. Uh, like I said, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And then also whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five-star button. Tell us what we're doing wrong or, you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.